Welcome to this special episode of IRACast. In this episode, we'll take a look at the Flatten Inaccessibility Survey. Today, we are talking about a survey that many of you participated in back in April of 2020. And my guests to talk about the survey are IRA's Senior Policy Advisor, Paul Schrader. Hello, Paul. Hey, Janine. And Dr. L. Penny Rosenblum, who is the Research Director at the American Foundation for the Blind. Hello, Penny. Hi, great to be here. And I'm looking forward to the conversation about our Flatten and Accessibility Study. Paul, how did we get into this study? Because uh, there, were, there were actually a couple studies, right? Ira, uh, particularly Troy Otilio, our CEO, was very enthusiastic and very much driven to have this get done. We started, as Ira explorers may recall, with our own survey of the Ira community to get a sense of how people were doing what was happening with COVID. And I want to say that was early March, just as early to mid-March, just as things were, were really starting to um, get a lot of national attention on the, on the issue and the, and the impact of COVID. From that initial survey, and I believe we've put something up on our website about that, we learned a bit. And we also learned that we really wanted to do something broader. And so Troy started talking with some of our partners, some of the organizations that we work with regularly in the consumer community and the assistive technology community uh, and elsewhere. And there seemed to be general agreement that this was, this was a topic worth pursuing uh, and that we needed a, a, a broader uh, effort. And so 16, ultimately 16 organizations joined uh, that are listed on the Flatten inaccessibility website and in the research report. Um, many others I know helped amplify and send out information about the uh, report. And it really ran the gamut from the consumer organizations that most of us know, uh, many of the assistive technology companies that we work with, many of the service organizations in the blindness community that were involved. And of course, significant amount of effort, really the, the lead, uh, this effort, this research would not have happened without the American Foundation for the Blind stepping in and Kirk Adams, the president and CEO, determining that this was something that he would put some resources behind. And hence, we found our way to L. Penny Rosenberg. And Penny, you and your team then compiled the results of this survey into a report, which has been published now. And that report, well, actually, we had, looks like 1,921 valid survey participants with 11 sections in the report and 171 questions. It was a long survey, but a really interesting one. There were some um, places where people could do open-ended comments which many of those quotes were used throughout the survey. Absolutely. So I'll I'll kind of pick up a little bit where Paul left off. So when when Troy reached out to Kirk Adams, the CEO and president of AFB, it was um, just kind of like, hey, Penny, can you help out Troy and Ira? You know, they want to expand this internal survey. And it morphed very quickly because I think many of us recognize that COVID is going to impact all of us, but those of us with visual impairments like myself, really COVID has brought up both systemic issues that 
we've always had issues with, for example, accessibility and access to transportation, but COVID also was very quickly creating new issues, like how do you social distance when you can't judge what six feet is? And so the survey was developed um, by going to the partner organizations and getting some input on questions, meeting with Troy um, and others. And we got that survey out um, between March 24th and April 2nd. I didn't get a lot of sleep for us <laughs> to be able to launch on April 3rd. Um, we had a really large team that analyzed the um, data and uh, wrote the report. So the, those co-authors, we absolutely could not have gotten that report out without them or the resources of AFB. So it was a really big monumental effort, but the end result is we have the largest sample that I'm aware of of visually impaired adults in a moment in time when there was quite a lot going on that was unknown and new. And we're still in an unknown and new stage seven months later with some of the same issues we identified in April occurring now. And I want to give a shout out to Joshua Flewellen from IRIS staff. Joshua did a, a good amount of work with the research team at AFB. And so let's go ahead and talk about the report. First of all, we'll let people know where that report is available and in what formats. Absolutely. So you can go to flattenaccessibility.com, which um, Ira, thank you very much for supporting that site um, for us. Or you can go to afb.org forward slash flatten inaccessibility. So afb.org forward slash flatten inaccessibility. And you will find that you can either go through, the everything's accessible, you can go through the report online as an HTML document, you can move from section to section, or you can download an accessible PDF of the report that is printable. Uh, we will be also adding the executive summary as a separate document as well to be able to be downloaded, which would be a great tool for you to use if you're advocating in your own community, you know, you can either direct people to a certain part of the report on the website. So if you're talking to somebody about transportation, you can, you know, direct them specifically to that HTML link, or you can share the executive summary or the full report with them. We want um, you, the individual who's using that report to advocate for your own needs and the needs of those with visual impairments to have a lot of uh, flexibility in how you use this kind of large report. I think many of us take these kinds of surveys, even the really intensive ones, and then we think, oh, okay, that was a nice exercise. What, what will happen to this information? And what will happen to it is that it's out there for you to use to advocate uh, as a tool to inform, to educate, and to advocate for programs that we might need. So let's go ahead and jump into the survey. Like I said, it has 11 sections. So the first two sections kind of tell us uh, about who we are, are uh, surveying and the population that took the survey. Can you tell us a little bit about those two parts and what the results were of the uh, about you and about your technology sections? Sure. So what we, I, I'm not going to I don't want to, you know, sit here and take <laughs> off numbers to 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 your listeners. So I'm going to just give you some broad strokes, folks. Sure. And I'm going to say that, you know, 
to find those actual percentages and numbers, you need to go to the report. So as you alluded to, it is, oh, there was a lot of questions. However, no individual person answered every question. So in this um, about you is your basic demographic. So we were predominantly white. We were predominantly female. We had more people in the over 55 age category than, than younger categories. We had people who lived in all different kinds of arrangements to on their own to um, with, a, with a partner or a spouse to family members. Um, and we actually had um, uh, somebody from a homeless shelter. So we, mm -hmm. we would love to like to have had more, um, more on different living arrangements, but we had a pretty good rec rec uh, representation. As far as technology use goes, uh, most everybody had a smartphone. Most everybody was using the internet. The challenge with technology that many of the participants alluded to um, are not going to surprise our listeners. Accessibility, that not everything is accessible. I get the technology, but if the website, the app, um, the telehealth program is not accessible, the tool my employer is using because now we're suddenly working at home, I still have the same problems I had before COVID but has exacerbated that. We also found that people were frustrated with not being able to get access to up-to-date COVID information, that a lot of the infographics, a lot of the things being put up on the television screen were not being described. And so therefore, you know, here's the map of our county and showing which zip codes are having the highest rate and then the map goes away, there's no discussion. And that was very frustrating for individuals taking part in the survey. And what we found with our IRA agents was that that information was sometimes extremely difficult to find on a local level uh, because, you know, someone in the media would say, go to the county website, but then where do you go from there? And um, for some of our explorers in those early days, it was really, really difficult to find the information they wanted about zones that were very localized to them. So that does not surprise me at all. I know that uh, one of the things we're going to talk about as we get into the results is, is some of the issues that, that, that might be termed as bias or that, um, that affected uh, the responses. And, and some of the things that I think probably leapt out to all of us, um, the number, the, the high percentage of individuals who we sort of classed as congenitally blind, as opposed to individuals with low vision. And I think, uh, Penny, uh, you describe uh, in the report how we made that determination, because that was not, a, I guess, an initial question in the, in the document, um, and the, the high proportion of female response. But, you know, obviously, we knew as we were developing this instrument, and, and we did develop it very quickly, a lot of input, but really a lot of effort on the part of, of uh, the research team at AFB to, to, to design and organize it and to uh, make sure the questions were making sense. A lot of input from the rest of us and things that we wanted to know. But we knew that doing a, an online only survey was going to be heavily biased in certain ways. A lot of individuals would not be participating and not be able to participate for various reasons. And so that, that's a, that is an unfortunate outcome or an unfortunate reality of this kind of a survey that we, that we will have to you know, contend with and try to do our best with at other times. There was, it's not as though we didn't know, and, and certainly I think we talk about this in the report, but we knew this could be uh, a concern. And so that the high technology usage, you know, in a sense, is not surprising. 
Correct. Absolutely. And, and that's that definitely is something that's not unique to survey research, but um, does need to be considered as, as people interpret the results. So thanks for bringing that up, Paul. Beyond that section, our next section deals with health care. Obviously, a crucial issue during a pandemic. What were some of the things that maybe surprised you or came out of that particular section from the survey questions? So I want to remind the listeners that the data was collected in April and our COVID numbers compared to the 210,000 deaths we've experienced in the United States in early October were, were very small at that point. But what was very much on the minds of participants was how do I get to a COVID test site? Communities primarily then and continue seven months later to have drive up or drive through test sites. And if I am a non-driver because I have a visual impairment or another disability or financially cannot afford a vehicle, how do I go through a drive up or a drive through anything? And how do I do that safely? Am I going to say to my grandmother, my neighbor, my friend, my husband, my wife, I'm pretty sure I have COVID. I need to go get a test. So let me expose you in this enclosed car. Mm-hmm. Am I going to call Lyft or Uber you know, and get with somebody I don't know and expose them? Am I going to walk to my bus stop and get on a bus and expose those individuals? That is one of the biggest issues still facing um, individuals with visual impairments. How can I get a COVID test? without putting anybody else at risk. The same thing really holds true with if I am sick and I need to get to a hospital or the doctor, how am I going to do that? Another area around healthcare had to do with with getting medications. Many of the participants already were using an app or a website to, to order their medications and have them delivered to home. Some people did need to do a scramble to learn how to do those things. But some medications can only be picked up at the pharmacy. There's a quote in the report from somebody, a female over the age of 75, who basically said, I called the pharmacy and I said, you know, I'm blind. I can't come get this prescription that has to be gotten in person. Can you deliver? And they said, no, please come to our drive-thru window. Oh, my. Exactly what call I drive. Um, And then the last healthcare issue is around telehealth. Many... um, Healthcare providers move to telehealth for obvious reasons. Some of those apps are not accessible. Some of those apps or websites are partially accessible. So people talk about, okay, yes, I can push the button and I can talk to my doctor, you know, you know, through the camera and the video, but I can't get into the part of the health telehealth app where I can write a message. And I really don't want to discuss my private healthcare issues with my my teenage son, for example, Mm -hmm. um, or my neighbor to say, well, you type this into the doctor. And so that lack of privacy and independence really shown through in the healthcare area um, as real concerns. Not surprising. And unfortunately, especially if those are phone apps, that's not something that Ira is always able to assist with in the way you might need because of the the parameters of uh, mobile phones, particularly the iOS platform. Um, We're not able to jump in there and take over the keyboard and, and input information for you in that platform. So that is kind of a double barrier there. Um, choose some of these apps. I think we'll get into this too and in, in, as we get into the transportation and technology job employment that COVID but in particular around health exposed so many challenges for 
all of us, our country, our economy, the world, namely PPE, availability testing, availability treatments. But for those of us who are blind or, or visually impaired or who otherwise um, get around differently, not using cars, for example, it did expose all these, these challenges. And I think we're still, we still haven't solved them. We still don't haven't solved testing. We still haven't necessarily solved safe transportation. I think people are some, somewhat now figuring out wh what and how to assess the risk uh, if they're not necessarily going, you know, thinking they have COVID symptoms, but just wanting to get, get her out in the community and have to, have to travel. But that's been a challenge all along too, is just getting that information. But what COVID really has done, it has done is exposed, I think, these, these fundamental challenges that we've all had as people with disabilities, but, but made them far worse. And we weren't prepared for solving them. And we're still in many ways not prepared. Maybe on the upside of that, when things are accessible, like the telehealth platforms, that's really helpful across the board because of things like transportation being barriers to healthcare. So being able to access some services via accessible telemedicine where it exists probably ought they to also, be. I think the remote too. apps like Be My Eyes and Ira have also helped. Oh, it's yeah. something that was available that's, that helped to step in to fill some of the, some of the gaps in information access and getting around access that would have been even harder if people didn't have access to those remote apps. But of course, they're both dependent on having a smartphone. Our next area is transportation, and this sort of dovetails along with what we've been talking about, but were there any things around public sure. transportation? Yes, yeah, so I, you're right. It dovetails, actually, transportation dovetails into every area of the report. So we'll continue to visit about transportation and some of the examples I'll give. But specific areas around transportation, uh, many communities to keep um, bus drivers safe started uh, backdoor boarding so that um, passengers were asked to, instead of board at the front of the bus, to board at the back of the bus. And for many of our folks, um, especially those who were elderly or had additional disabilities, getting up those steps was problematic, if not impossible. Also for um, many bus riders who want to confirm with the driver, is this the number nine going east? Can you let me know when we get to such and such street? You didn't have access to the driver. Another big issue for public transportation users was how do you pick that seat? You're trying to maintain six feet social distance. You also, okay, we're in an enclosed space and there's no way to do six feet social distance, but let me at least sit with people who have masks on. Yes. So how, how do I do that on public transportation? In some communities, services were canceled with little or no notice. Um, maybe a notice was put on a website, which wasn't accessible. So that was problematic. We had people in our survey who were um, employed essential workers who all now of a sudden did not have a way to get to their work site. And those things are still going on. Some of the transit uh, agencies have found that limiting capacity on the buses helps a little bit, but I think there's still a lot of confusion out there. And I know, you know, paratransit services, sharing a ride with a number of people who often have compromised health, that's a little unnerving for me. And working out the issues around that, I'm sure, um, that conversation is still happening. And Absolutely. I'll express a note of appreciation to the American Council of the Blind, one of the, particip one of the participating organizations that 
although it didn't reference uh, in the final version of a resolution about transportation and government services access, it didn't reference this survey. I know that it was in part of the discussion around crafting a resolution for calling upon transportation and government services to address some of these challenges to use apps where appropriate, like IRA and BMIs, et cetera, but also to ensure that uh, there was an effort uh, to address the needs of individuals who didn't have access to those technologies and those tools. But so they, they used this uh, work as a, as a pivot point to help make this larger point as, a, as an organization about the need for services to, to take this into consideration. Section number five is about employment. This drastically changed for many people during the pandemic and right around the time that the survey was being taken. I think that was some of the some of the darkest days for folks, I think, because, you know, they, their offices were closing or closed. Their businesses were closing or closed. They were going to working at home. What did we find from the survey about employment? I do want to point out to uh, listeners, when you do read the report, you're going to find out that 25% approximately of the participants were retired and about 30% of the participants were not working prior to COVID-19. We did not delve into why people were not working. So the group of individuals who responded on the employment questions was, you know, just a few hundred of the 1921. That being said, one thing that first comes to mind is about 150 people had been working before um, COVID and, and were no longer working because as you alluded to, furloughs or layoffs. So we got down to that group of a couple hundred people who were working and their issues are not gonna surprise those of us who are in the workforce. Many people had little or no time to plan for the transition from working in, a, in an office to working at home. And so they didn't have their tools with them, whether their tool was a, um, a monitor, extra lighting, a laptop with, with screen access technology such as JAWS or Fusion. And they didn't have those tools. They also didn't have humans. So it's not uncommon. I do it my own self as a person with low vision. I'm doing a work task. There's something I can't see. So I go to the next desk, the next cube down the hall, and I say, you know, hey, could you could you take a look at this and tell me, you know, tell me what it says? Some people were using tools like Ira and Be My Eyes, and Ira's paid subscription was um, something that they did not have because most of the time they had a human or they just needed the five minutes, but now they were finding at home, they had a lot more need for vision um, access. And so we're working with employers to, to request a paid subscription, or they were requesting a paid subscription for their laptop for JAWS, for example, or that their um, employer buy them a large, um, larger monitor than the one they had at home. The other big issue around employment really also ties to what we talked to already about technology and healthcare, which is the whole issue of access. And this cuts across all areas of the report. So many people all of a sudden, um, we're doing this interview today on Zoom. Zoom's a great tool, but it is not fully accessible. So I can, as a visually impaired person using screen access, I can connect, I can raise my hand, I can mute and unmute, but some of the icons for go faster or um, clapping are not easily accessible to me or at all. Tools such as polling are not accessible to me. And so, and how do I know that my camera is set up properly? 
you know, I'm, I'm a blind person. I'm getting ready to do a presentation to the board of my company. And um, I really don't want them looking just at my forehead or my cap. I want them actually looking at me and having me framed appropriately um, in, in the screen. So lots of issues around employment that again, tie into other areas of the report. And surprisingly, just being able to log into your employment platform became a really uh, difficult accessibility kind of issue for some people I know. Absolutely, especially you know if your company is using proprietary <laughs> software. So you know now you have to VPN into that proprietary mm -hmm. software. Lots of barriers for folks. That also really held true when we get to education. That was one of the big issues was getting into my university's online tools. And of course, several organizations working with uh, AFB did a, a separate survey specifically around education that I think, is that report also now fully available, Penny? So that's the access and engagement report. And we had 1,432 participants representing 455 children and 1,028 teachers of visually impaired students and orientation and mobility specialists. And we have posted the executive summary for that report on our website at afb.org forward slash access engagement. So afb.org forward slash access engagement. And we anticipate that report being published by the end of the month. And one of the things that I hope uh, we've, we've had some conversations among the many organizations involved in this effort to see how we might take another crack at this and determine when would be a good time and, and where might we find the resources to do it. But the employment section really is one that, uh, well, they're all ones that I'd like to follow up on, but I, I'd, I'd like, a, you know, I'm hoping we'll get some opportunity to engage with organizations very specifically to focus around employment because I do think we're going to, my, my, my guess is we're going to find some distressing news in that environment if we, if we really are able to focus on people um, who had jobs, whose jobs may have gone away, who may be on an indefinite uh, layoff period, as many in the economy are now. Section six is one near and dear to my heart. It talks about current education. And as I was just approved to get a new guide dog in February of this year and was slated for a spring or summer class, uh, that didn't happen. What was the state of current education and what people were facing in terms of their current education, either college, um, blindness rehabilitation, any of those things? Absolutely, great question. So we did run the gambit from people at community college to four-year institutions to um, people, uh, I'll call it compensatory um, education, whether it's getting a dog guide, whether it's learning to use a cane, whether it's attending a cooking class at a rehab center or going to a, a veterans program. Across the board, everything stopped and everything stopped abruptly. So for this was again in early April. So for some people, nothing was happening. You know, I've heard that the community college is going to start offering classes in the summer. I've, I've heard from the dog guide school that they're hoping to start back up in July. For the people who were engaged in, in education, it was online. Um, so the same issues again that we talked about with accessibility in the workplace were, were here online. Is my, my learning management system, Blackboard, Canvas, you know, whatever my, my entity is using, is that accessible to me? 
for people in, in college type courses, um, perhaps in that course, it's a lab course. And so in the chemistry lab, I have an, a sighted assistant or I'm you know, doing an experiment with a partner who's sighted and you know, is able to describe the experiment to me. Now the instructor is posting a video that's not accessible and I'm supposed to you know, decide what's happened in this experiment and you know, did we meet the hypothesis. Um, perhaps I'm taking um, a, a, a geometry type of trigonometry type of class where I'm working with the Disabilities Service Center on my college campus. So those graphics that accompany that class are for me in Braille. Now, how do I get those? I'm at home. Is anybody even in the university's office where those graphics are produced to put them into you know, Braille tactile format for me? So now I suddenly can't participate. We had a participant who talked about, I was taking a sign language class and you know how difficult that became in the online environment without somebody in the class with her. She was trying to be logged in on the learning management system and then on her phone was, was doing like FaceTime with, with um, her assistant and, and she just couldn't keep up in real time with, with the two technology platforms, one in each ear. Lots of challenges around education, whether we're talking um, university, college, or we're talking compensatory. Again, to dovetail on the adult education environment, area number seven is for those of those folks who are caring for children in K through 12, and how the educational environment, which is even less accessible than the college and university one, treated them as parents or guardians having to help these children who were obviously not in a physical school anymore. Yeah, so thanks for asking about that. So this really dovetails into the access and engagement survey because accessibility across education platforms, we see it in, in all areas. And we also see that the we had parents of visually impaired children in access and engagement who, okay, yeah, my sighted kid can get on and do stuff, but I'm the parent and I'm supposed to be getting on and doing stuff. Or my sighted kid happens to be a four-year-old or a five-year-old and you know isn't independent and I'm the visually impaired person who needs to get on and access. So those were challenging um, for, for parents regardless of which survey they were in. Some of the parents in the flattening and accessibility study, and it was again a very small group of people who were parents, talked about their concern about keeping their, you know, not not supporting their child, that their child was going to get behind because the things that parents would typically do help with this homework assignment, you know, go over the directions to this worksheet that the teacher, you know, has posted to make sure you understand what you need to do, were not accessible to the parents or the grandparents of, of the, the child that we're supporting in education. Unfortunately, as I'm hearing when the school year started back up in August and September, these problems still existed for a, a large number of parents, uh, blind and visually impaired parents, and still some of the children as well. But uh, I, I saw a lot of social posts from parents about that topic. And so I want to mention to um, the listeners, especially if you are a parent um, or a grandparent, that you're in charge. We use the term family member because we uh -huh. realize that not everybody is a parent who is supporting a, a child when we do birth to 21. We're interested in early intervention and in preschool services and in school age services that we're going to do a second round of the access and engagement survey. 
and that will be coming out um, the last week in October. And we want to really reach a wide audience of family members or guardians of children, and also those professionals, those teachers of students with visual impairments and those orientation and mobility instructors. And one thing we're gonna ask, if every person who hears about the survey or reads about the survey and knows somebody who isn't a tech person, whether they don't have a device, whether they don't have the internet that's reliable, if, if each person would reach out to one person and tell them about the study and say, you know, I'm happy to you know, be the person who enters your data for you. I can read it to you, you know, and, and enter your choices so your voice will be heard, even if internet access at this particular time isn't something that works well in your life. Oh, that is a fantastic idea. And um, we, we should probably have that kind of in place in the community for any survey that we come across. But that's a wonderful idea because if the parent isn't a technical person or doesn't have familiarity with technology and assistive technology and things like that, that really puts them at, at a bit of a disadvantage when everything has gone digital, basically. The number eight category, there was a quote toward the beginning of the report that really kind of shook me. And it had to do with someone who was deafblind saying, you know, being deafblind in the midst of this pandemic, I might as well be in solitary confinement. And category number eight is about social participation. Let's talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So, you know, the deal with, with socialization, we already know that often people who are visually impaired feel isolated from others. You know, you might not be comfortable going to a group setting. Who's talking? Am I, you know, am I about ready to, you know, run into the buffet table? And so a lot of folks with visual impairments, especially folks who have recently acquired visual impairments, tend to stop shy away from, from social situations. Not everybody, of course. I, I'm not trying to make generalizations here. But we, you know, we, we have had people who have shared that. So when you put the COVID-19 spin on life, I need to stay six feet away from people. I don't want to get in an enclosed space with people. I don't want to get in a vehicle, whether that's a public vehicle, a hired vehicle, a vehicle of family or friends. I'm limiting my social world. So what do we do? Well, we do what we're doing right now for this interview. We're all in three different states and here we are on Zoom just chatting away. Well, for many of our participants, they even felt left out of these types of interactions because you know people were like, oh, look at the baby. Oh, let me show you what the puppy's doing. Oh, I love your blouse. And so they were missing that part of the interaction as well. So it was, it was tough for a lot of our participants socially. It'd be really interesting when we take a look at some of these issues again to see how people have adapted has it as a general rule has has things have things gotten tougher have people figured out how to use technology and other solutions including you know some some outdoor gatherings and things of that sort mm -hmm. uh, if that's appropriate what, how people have fared in terms of of social activity and I, I think my in hearing the community people seem to have gone in a couple of directions, but I, I look at um, what the consumer groups have done, for example, and some and some of the service providing agencies who have really significantly amped up the online activities that they were doing and seem to be getting good participation. Yes. Um, which which while it isn't a full solution, perhaps at least is filling a gap mm -hmm. and maybe providing opportunities that weren't even there prior to COVID. 
And I think that surprised a lot of us who were involved in planning some of the large convention activities that go on in the summer in the blindness community. And it, it, we thought, well, you know, this will die down after the convention, and it hasn't. There are still weekly community meetings and things like that that occur on, you know, these online platforms and really it, it people seem to be getting used to being able to communicate this way it's very um, very interesting well category number nine was one that it, it's kind of at the time you know we were thinking that toilet paper was worth more than gold so <laughs> category number nine uh deals with how you are faring at acquiring food and supplies. And this one was quite interesting to me because at that time, uh, grocery delivery services were a fairly new thing for some people. Now, some people, not so much. They had done that a lot. But what else did we learn from this particular category? Well, I think one of the biggest things we learned was that just because you know how to use a grocery store app doesn't mean that you get your food and your supplies. That especially in the beginning, some of these services had one, two, three week gaps between the time you ordered and the time that things actually appeared. Some companies allowed you to order certain things online, but not other things. So we had a parent who talked about the fact that there was none of the services available to her that would deliver diapers. How do you have a baby, folks, without? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Um, then there were folks who talked about, and a few folks, not a lot, great, I've gotten online, I've ordered, I've gotten a slot, and then I get um, a ding that tells me that my ex has been delivered. Well, where? <laughs> um, and yes. then, you know, can't go out there and see where it is. And then also, we have folks who live in, in a building and this isn't specific to visual impairment, but things that we need to think about societally, who live in a building where you can't get access to the building um, unless you have a code. And so I'm a, I'm a delivery driver. I'm going to just set it outside. I am not going to go in trying to figure out how to, you know, ring apartment 37, you know, stand there with these deliveries until the person comes down and gets them. So some issues specific to visual impairment, again, some issues not specific to visual impairment that as a society, we need to be planning to be inclusive in all aspects of life. And I think if nothing else that COVID has done for us as a disability community is the recognition that things need to be planned from an inclusive level from the beginning, not as an afterthought. One of the things that struck me early on, not only from the survey, but in other anecdotal comments from people was the difficulty in using uh, SNAP benefits yes. uh, for yes. not in person, yes. right? For delivery, remote access. And, and you know, that, that's, a, that's a barrier that we need to address from a policy level. It just simply needs to get mm -hmm. done because that, that never should be a, a barrier. And that was really very, very hard to read about people who couldn't use their SNAP benefits to get food or supplies, people who also, the website wasn't accessible so they couldn't sign up for it. And that goes back to something with employment and unemployment and the many unemployment and uh, uh, other benefit sites that were inaccessible. 
and it's severely inaccessible, as in you can't even work around it with technology. You know, you're going to have to have someone else do this for you. We heard a lot of these at IRA and, of course, people who then tried to resort to the phone, anybody, vision, vision impaired or not. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, a severe misery index because those sites were so poorly supported. Absolutely. And boy, does this take us into our number 10 topic, one near and dear to the heart of Mr. Paul Schrader, and that is voting. (laughs) And uh, when you're thinking about things like accessing SNAP and other benefits, certainly voting for the officials that govern your state and municipality is very important. So what did we learn from the voting section? Well, we learned that... um, Many, many, many of our participants were registered voters. Which yeah, was nice that was that was incredible. That was really <laughs> terrific. But that, again, that not to be on the downside, um, we miss those people who aren't registered voters who are visually impaired. Why does this have mm-hmm. to do with the way the survey was delivered, which was on mm-hmm. the internet? That being said, when the survey was occurring, we were back in the primary caucusing season. So remember, back in April, mm-hmm. we, we didn't know who our candidates would be. So we asked questions about, you know, if, if you haven't had the opportunity, your state has not yet caucused or, or done a primary, you know, are you going to participate around, you know, with, you know, now in the light of COVID? And there were people who definitely were like, you know, no, I'm not. Some people were like, I already, you know, use mail-in ballots. I think probably one of the most upsetting question responses to me was we had a question about how do you typically vote mail-in, go in person, use an accessible, go in, go in person, do it, you know, as a sighted person would, so to speak, do it with an accessible, um, you know, voting option. And we had a bunch of people who said, I didn't know you could do it accessible. Oh, And so I think that is a concern to me. And I know we're talking about voting, but let me just also piggyback on, because I think this is important, and maybe some of our listeners don't know, that your pharmacy can provide you large printer braille labels or an option called script talk. And we have people Mm -hmm. who wrote in the comments, how do I get braille labels? What is script talk? I just looked up script talk on my phone. That is so cool. Thank you for telling me about it. So. Um, whether we're talking about voting or other areas, we as a society are not doing a good job of getting the word out to people who aren't, as I like to call them, part of the Bs, the ACBs, the NFBs, you know, the BBAs, you know, pick, pick your B. And how do we reach those people so they, they can take advantage of, of voting options that were of concern to them during COVID that aren't going away? Every American needs the opportunity to vote privately, you know, on their own and to ensure that their vote is going to count. And there were people in the survey who had concerns that their vote would not be either entered or because of accessibility compromised by the COVID situation, or not compromised, but exacerbated by the COVID situation. I think this is a good point to, to make that larger point, right? That there's so many things that we've learned as a a globe uh, from COVID. So many things that have been, that, that, that we have spotlighted where problems are and shame on us if we don't address them as we get back toward, when we get back toward the norm of conducting, of moving about in the world of jobs and education. 
shame on us if we don't. So one of the things for sure is voting. We've, we, we, again, COVID spotlighted one of the challenges for people in, in voting when you don't or can't go to a polling place. And, and of course, we already knew there were accessible accessibility challenges at those places. But for everyone, we have learned what, what some of the holes in the system are, and we need to address those. We, we need to have a serious conversation about how we address access to food benefits, to health care, to voting technologies. There are so many transportation, so many things that we've learned. I think those of us in the blindness and low vision community knew a lot of this anyway, because we are kind of that canary that knows the challenges that face. But I think the rest of the world has now learned some of the things we already knew about how precarious we are in many ways. Yes, and we came up with a lot of hacks during this period too, that many of us knew, but other people were very stunned at in terms of, you know, having to get groceries by mail or prescriptions by mail or uh, tackle X thing in your home or, uh, you know, uh, doing homeschooling with information that's not necessarily accessible, even for people who didn't have a visual impairment, but they may have a reading disability or something and just never thought of it before. So, you know, I saw a lot of, uh, you know, disabled people can really hack COVID and I thought, well, <laughs> to an extent we can. However, how can people actually use this information and really get involved? And uh, awesome. what, what can we do? Sure. So a couple things. So this is the first group I am sharing this with um, because we just, um, decided today on the details. Um, AFB is going to be hosting three town hall meetings. They're all going to be at 2 p.m. Eastern time. The first one is going to be on October 23rd and the topics are going to be healthcare, transportation, and voting. The second one is going to be on October 29th and we're going to be talking about employment and technology. And the third one is going to be on November 10th, and we're going to be talking about education across the lifespan. And we'll be highlighting information from both the Flatten Inaccessibility Report and the Access and Engagement Reports. You can always come to afb.org, though we'll be asking all of our collaborating organizations for both um, Flattening Inaccessibility and Access and Engagement, which of course includes IRA, to, to share on social media and to put in newsletters and stuff. Absolutely. Um, we want to have a dialogue. So when the Flatten and Accessibility Report came out on September 30th, and we did make it by the last day of September, <laughs> I uh, sent an email to everybody who in that final section, um, final thought section, had provided their email address and said, I'm, you know, please let me know when the report's out. And within half an hour, I got an email from an individual who said, well, thank you. I appreciate getting the report. So now what are you going to do? Oh. Meaning AFB. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, we're planning some things, but excuse me, but what are you, visually impaired person who completed survey, going to do? And I don't mean that individual happens to be a listener. Please, please know um, your, your email really sparked some great discussion at AFB. So we wrote a blog post called Five Ways to Use the Flatten and Accessibility Report to Raise Awareness in Your Community. And I really, um, we'll be putting that in the, the notes from today's session. And I really encourage you to lift, um, take the time to read it. So one thing we talk about is to use social media and other networks to share the report. When you pair your story with the data from this report, you're helping build awareness and get people aware of what is going on for you. You can write um, to your newspaper. 
Think about doing a letter to the editor. Again, if you can highlight specific things in your community, if, if voting in your community as a person with a visual impairment during COVID is challenging, but it has always been challenging, how are we gonna change voting in your municipality unless your local people know about your issues? The third thing we talk about is writing to your elected officials. That could be at the, at the national level, but it also could be at the local level. And there's lots of different officials that are out there. So if you're concerned about access to education for your, your college, well then write to your board of regents that are over your university. If you're concerned because product X isn't accessible for you um, as your online shopping tool, well, if you don't tell the company that makes product X what your challenges are using their website or their app, how are they gonna know what changes need to be made? Our fourth point we talk about is to think about issues most important to you and reach out to agencies or companies that provide that service. So if your bus company is requiring that you do backdoor boarding and that's problematic for you, they need to hear from you. So if your grocery store is now not allowing you to get a shopping assistant at customer service, you need to let them know why that's problematic for you and make some suggestions for changes that could be made so we all can stay safe. And finally, we ask that you share the report with fellow advocates. So if you are a member of a B organization, NFB, ACB, BBA, uh, add in NOAA, National Organization of Albinism and Hypopigmentation, for example, they're not a B, but I count them too. And many other organizations that might not be coming to mind, maybe around the specific eye condition you have, get together. Let's talk about this report. Let's talk about, is there a statement our organization wants to put out? Is there a letter writing campaign we want to ask the members of our organization to do? How can we work together? Because when we work together, we are gonna be more likely to affect change. It would be very easy to take both of these reports and let them sit on shelves, or in this case, on web pages. But we have never had 1,921 adults, information about 455 children, and experiences of 1,028 teachers of visually impaired and O&M students at a point in time. This is a pivotal point in time. We have got to work together. We've got to pool our resources. We've got to pull our voices together so that we are united, so that we do give the message out that inclusivity of people with visual impairments on all levels is a right and something that needs to happen now. That is a mic drop moment. I, am, I, I was going to say, <laughs> I am cheering now. The only thing I would add, just because this is the IRACast is that there is plenty of information in this report, these reports really, for those who want to advocate for IRA as a solution for specific needs that you have. And, and I think that will be true for other technologies as well. There's tons of good information in here to use for yourself, for the organizations that you may be engaged with in terms of consumer level activity and professional level activity to advocate for solutions like IRA or other technologies that you believe uh, will help solve some of the challenges that, that have been articulated here and, and so well explained in this format. 
the information in this report has been really driving us at IRA and I'm sure a number of other companies and organizations at looking at where we want to put our resources and where we want to really push in future with our access partners, with uh, other programs, policies, as Paul alluded to, all of that across the board. So it's, uh, you know, it's not just a consumer effort. Uh, if your company might want to get involved and really push for things. This report is a wonderful tool for them as well. More voices, the stronger we will be. And so I encourage IRA listeners to come to the town halls that um, AFB will be um, leading um, later in October and on November 10th as well. And we also have created two email addresses. So I'll, I'll say those and we'll make sure they go into the yes. notes. So the first one is flatten underscore report at afb.org. So if you have questions, thoughts, ideas, tell us how you're using the flatten and accessibility survey. We'd like to hear from you at flatten underscore report at afb.org. And we will do the same thing for the access and engagement. So if you're specifically interested in education of children with visual impairments, that's going to be access underscore report at afb.org. So we want to hear from you. I would love to thank Paul Schrader. And Paul, how can people get a hold of you if they have questions on the IRA side about these yeah. issues? Would love to hear from people. It's very simple. Paul, P-A-U-L, at A-I-R-A dot I-O. And a very special thanks to Dr. L. Penny Rosenblum. Penny, how can folks get a hold of you and, and AFB? If they want to speak to me specifically, it's P. Rosenblum, P-R-O-S-E-N-B-L-U-M at AFB.org. Um, again, they, if they want to more general about those reports, um, flatten underscore report at AFB.org or access underscore report at AFB.org. Thank you both so much for being with me here on IRACAST. We're talking with Joshua Fluellen of IRA. Hello, Joshua. Hi, Janine. It's so great to be here with you. You were actually part of this survey effort as well. Can you tell us about what role you played in the Flatten Inaccessibility Survey and Report? Yeah, absolutely. So I did a whole lot of data digging. And so one of the main things that I did was when you responded with an other response, I read through all of those wonderful long responses and tried to help the team understand whether or not that information could be grouped and decoded into categories that we already had or create new categories to help give some good vivid imagery to those things that you were writing. Another big thing that I helped out on was uh, by uh, figuring out the population size of uh, all of the locations where everyone was responding from. And so I took the respondent zip codes and found out what county people lived in and then went to U.S. Census data and pulled from that census data the population figures for those areas and that was able to give us a more vivid picture as to 
the type of environment our respondents were replying from. Uh, and the methodology for that was really spelled out nicely in the report, um, talking about how you divided things up into urban urban clusters, which was a term that I hadn't heard since I worked in transportation, um, <laughs> and in rural. That that term brought back a lot of memories, like, oh, yeah, I don't know, suburbs. <laughs> it was a lot of fun at working. I uh, learned a lot in this process. It's amazing what these sorts of projects can teach you. I worked with another individual here at Ira to learn a bit of Python programming, which we had 1900 approximately responses and going one by one to try and match each of those to a population figure amongst what are over 10,000 zip codes would have taken a really long time. And so I had some help learning how to write a Python, uh, a bit of a Python script to automatically go and find and do some really simple matching of this is one zip code, this is the population, stick them two together. Here's another zip code, here's another population, stick the two together. And it was a lot of fun getting to learn new things on this project. After looking at all of the long responses and the open-ended kind of uh, questions and things like that, what, what things really jumped out at you from the report? I think the biggest, most overarching thing that jumped out to me was how unique, but also how the similarities the experiences of the community were represented across the spectrum of individuals who were responding to our survey, which really amplifies the need for these concerns to be addressed. I didn't find the onesie twosies, there's only one person saying this, It was across the board, a lot of people saying the same thing, which tells me that there's something systemic here. There's something that is happening on a larger scale, and it's not just a small pockets kind of issue or problem that we're we're facing, that we're looking at here. What I found was interesting was that it seemed to me, just from the, the basic statistics from the survey, that a lot of people who identified as congenitally blind seemed to be much more concerned about things like being able to go get tested, uh, being able to get supplies and things like that, and lots and lots of unknowns for people who were in that group. And I, I just found that very interesting because sometimes people who are congenitally blind feel a little left out because there are some visual concepts that maybe they were never exposed to or it was never explained. Okay, what does that mean visually? And then the whole dynamic of wearing a mask that could be a whole other survey, I think, <laughs> how people adjusted, but just seeing in the survey that there was a difference between people who were congenitally blind and people who had had some vision at one point in time and what their concerns were in terms of how things were progressing. Absolutely. I have been here at Ira for two and a half years and 
you begin to become steeped in the experiences of uh, our explorers and what their lives look like as you take calls on the dashboard. And I was blown away by how much more I learned listening and reading reading those responses and getting a better understanding of the challenges that are faced by these individuals outside of just the calls that they may put into Ira. And I know whenever my husband and I filled out our surveys, we were a little, well, more than a little at that point in time, uh, paranoid about, you know, gosh, what is going to happen? And why are we not getting, you know, information that we need? So that was, it, it just was really interesting to kind of read and see some of the quotes of people and know that they were not far from where we were at that point in time, because it just felt like you were out there in the wilderness by yourself. Right? This is October 6th now that we're speaking. And this survey was back April 6th, I believe April 4th was the day that we received the most responses to that survey. And so April 4th is only about three weeks from when the country went into its large scale kind of shutdowns began. And so Mm -hmm. there was a very large mentality of, I have no idea what October 6th is going to look like at at that time, right? I certainly had no idea what it was going to look like. And I think we're, we're starting in some small ways to get used to living like this as we open and close and open and close and things like that. And so now we can kind of stop being afraid and start taking some action on some of these things. Cause, boy, and it still some days feels so overwhelming, right? It does. It does. I, I can remember and I still feel this way going to although the parks here in san diego are now open i go down to the park and i see 10 15 20 people there and i start to hyperventilate like yes (laughs) wait a second why am i here why are we all here right now this and and there is there is some safety we know now in being masked being in an open air space and the relative danger in that situation, but it's still, there is this traumatic feeling of uh, what was happening there at the very beginning, seeping into still what's happening now. Did you find any hopeful things, any good things, you know, things that would be positive from the survey? I want to say the individuals taking the time to fill out what was, and let's be honest, a very, very, very long survey. Yes, 171 (laughs) questions. (laughs) That, there is hope in, in that. There is hope in a community of individuals who are in this fight to provide the data, to provide the information, to be advocates and say, these are my stories. This is my narrative. Now you all go do with it what, what you're capable and, and best. And so seeing 17 organizations come together to 
build this survey, to analyze this survey, and to put out this report, I am hopeful that we see large collaborations like this continue to happen because it really does take large voices to enact and to see change. And so I am so very thankful to each and every individual who gave their time during such a stressful period of time to fill out that survey and to give us all this data to work with to create this report, to send on to individuals in the community who now have the start of information they need to start to make decisions that'll better affect those who were responding to the survey. Thank you so much, Joshua Flewellen from Ira. Everyone stay well and stay safe. <laughs>